welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the fifth edition of our regular ISDS podcast series. My name is Susie Savage, and I'm a partner in the international arbitration team based in Reedsmith's London office. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined once again by my colleague, Patrick Beale, an international arbitration partner also based in the London office. Hello, Patrick. Hello again, Susie, and what a pleasure to be back doing this podcast with you. It's so interesting to check in and take stock of what's been happening over the last six months and what's on the horizon in the ISDS space. It most certainly is. And as always, there's a lot to talk about. Let's start with the Energy Charter Treaty then. In June, we discussed how a number of countries had given notice of their intention to withdraw from the ECT, leaving the ECT, frankly, in crisis and its future very much uncertain. So what's happened since then, Patrick? Well, Susie, 11 countries have now given notice of their withdrawal or an intention to do so. And on the 7th of July, the EU Commission proposed a coordinated withdrawal from the ECT by the EU, its member states and Euratom. Then in September, the UK government announced that it would review the UK's membership of the ECT and consider withdrawal from it if agreement on the modernised terms was not reached by November. As no agreement has been reached, the outcome of the UK's review is awaited. And that's not the only step that the UK has taken in connection with the ECT, is it? Uh, It's not, Susie. Uh, On the 29th of September, the UK exercised its rights under Article 17 of the ECT, the denial of benefits provision, to deny the treaty's investment protections to two categories of Russian investor. The first category is investors owned or controlled by Russian nationals, where those entities have no substantial business activities in the ECT contracting state where they're organised, so-called mailbox investors. And the second category is investors of Russia who are included on the UK sanctions list. And the UK isn't alone in invoking Article 17 in respect of Russian investors and joins Germany and Ukraine who have also done so. That really does leave the future of the ECT uncertain. It does. Uh, If the EU states do implement a coordinated withdrawal, then it would halve the number of signatories and therefore geographic coverage of the ECT protections. That said, at the meeting of the Energy Charter Conference in November, the ECT Secretariat indicated that it wished to renew its Consolidation Expansion Outreach, or Conexo, policy by exploring potential cooperation with OPEC. And this might indicate an intention to expand ECT membership to OPEC states. How very interesting. So given all the uncertainty concerning the future of the ECT, is there an alternative for investors who find that the ECT route is closed to them? There is, and all isn't lost. Investors can explore whether a relevant bilateral investment treaty exists that offers similar protection to the ECT, If not, they can consider restructuring their investments through remaining ECT signatory states. And they can also seek to strengthen contractual protections through a host government agreement. 
Alternatively, if the investor's home state and the host state are party to the European Convention on Human Rights, they may be able to invoke the protection of property provisions in Article 1 of Protocol 1 of that convention. A group of UCOS shareholders successfully brought a claim against Russia before it withdrew from the convention under the ECHR and were awarded almost $2 billion in compensation. And finally, insurance against certain risks might be available. Thank you very much. It is good to know that investors have other options. So now let's take a quick look at the other end of the process and enforcement once an award is made. There has been a recent significant case on this in the English High Court, hasn't there? Uh, There has. It's the Infrastructure Services Luxembourg against Spain case in which the English Commercial Court rejected Spain's attempts to resist enforcement of an ECT award issued in favour of EU incorporated investors. Right. So the English court hasn't followed the decisions of the Court of Justice of the European Union in the cases of Acmeyer and Constroy, both of which we previously discussed, which determined that intra-EU arbitration proceedings under the ECT were incompatible with EU law. Uh, That's right. The EU's position is that it's the final arbiter of all questions relating to the interpretation and application of the EU legal order. However, the judge in infrastructure services found that the EU treaties didn't have primacy over the dispute resolution provisions in Article 26 of the ECT. And accordingly, the investors' award against Spain was capable of registration in England. Let's turn now to domestic matters in the UK, where, as we discussed last time, the Law Commission has carried out a review of the English Arbitration Act of 1996. Indeed it has, and the Law Commission published its recommendations in September. The proposals follow consultation with arbitration lawyers and users, including, I'm proud to say, Reed Smith, which was cited in the Law Commission's report on the subject. The arbitration bill was then included in the King's speech in November, and this now means that it's been given a place in the current legislative session. So what are the principal recommendations, Susie, that will interest users of ISDS? So, while there are several notable recommendations, including in relation to summary disposal of a claim and arbitrator's duty of disclosure, I think the one that will interest ISDS practitioners most is the proposed change to challenging the substantive jurisdiction of the tribunal. Can you tell us about the reform the Law Commission has recommended in that regard? I can. So the aim is to simplify the process for challenging an arbitration tribunal's substantive jurisdiction. The main thrust of the proposed reform is to ensure that where the tribunal has already ruled on its jurisdiction and the objecting party participated in the process, then any subsequent challenge to an award under Section 67, that is, due to a lack of substantive jurisdiction, should be by way of review only and not a full rehearing as is currently the case. The objective of this is to reduce the risk of unfair or wasteful repetition that can potentially result from a full rehearing. The ability to introduce new arguments or evidence or have old evidence reheard would therefore be limited to exceptional situations only. But on the face of it, that seems to make quite a lot of sense. How has the proposal been received? That's a good question, actually. There's concern that a Section 67 challenge, which isn't a full rehearing, may not be enough to trigger an issue estoppel when enforcing the award abroad. The objecting party could then launch yet another jurisdictional challenge before the foreign enforcing court. 
the resulting delays and increased costs would likely be much greater than the savings made by avoiding a full rehearing in England. The scope for uncertainty and procedural unfairness would also be much greater, making the Section 67 reform, well, frankly, a pyrrhic victory. However, the Law Commission clearly wasn't convinced about the significance of this risk, in part because it expects foreign courts will still find an issue estoppel, even in the absence of a full rehearing. Time will tell, though, whether these concerns are well-founded. Well, thank you for that update on the Arbitration Act, Susie. Turning our gaze now to the Indo-Pacific region, where in July, the UK signed the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the CPTPP, and now has 12 months to ratify the agreement, with entry into force expected to take place in the latter half of 2024. The trade bloc comprises Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, Brunei, Vietnam, Canada, Mexico, Chile and Peru. And does the CPTPP include investor-state dispute settlement provisions? It does, and it's the first post-Brexit free trade agreement the UK has signed, which includes ISDS provisions. That said, the UK already has existing bilateral investment treaties with Singapore, Malaysia, Peru, Chile, Vietnam and Mexico. However, The UK has negotiated side agreements with Australia and New Zealand, with whom it doesn't have existing BITs, to exclude the operation of ISDS under the CPTPP. Right then, so how are ISDS claims conducted under the CPTPP? Well, as uh, will come as no surprise, claims are heard by a three-member tribunal with one arbitrator appointed by each of the parties and the chair appointed jointly, unless the parties agree otherwise. So pretty straightforward. And are there any particular features of the ISDS mechanism that listeners should be aware of? Uh, There are a few. Uh, The treaty contains a mandatory six-month cooling-off period. Investors can bring claims without first resorting to domestic proceedings, although a fork-in-the-road clause in the agreement precludes investors from pursuing arbitration against Chile, Mexico, Peru or Vietnam, where claims have already been pursued before domestic courts or administrative tribunals in those states. And also, notices of arbitration served on any of the treaty's signatories must be accompanied by a written waiver of any right to initiate or continue the same claims before any court, administrative tribunal or other dispute settlement body. And finally, uh, one feature to be particularly aware of is the three-and-a-half-year limitation period. So what about the substantive protections offered by the treaty? Well, some of the notable features include carve-outs from the national treatment standard for certain sectors, for example, health services. The agreement also allows states to deny the benefit of the treaty's investment chapter concerning tobacco control measures and non-discriminatory regulatory acts designed to promote legitimate public welfare objectives don't constitute indirect expropriation. And finally, Patrick, what rules apply to arbitration under the CPTPP? Well, cases can be heard under ICSID or UNSA trial rules or any other arbitral rules agreed upon by the investor and the state. Thank you. It will be interesting to see how all this plays out. Uh, From the Indo-Pacific to America, and more now on US disclosure. Listeners will recall that the US Supreme Court concluded that discovery assistance in the US 
under Section 1782 of the United States Code didn't extend to foreign private commercial arbitration or ad hoc investor state arbitration. The Supreme Court held that Section 1782 could only be invoked where the foreign tribunal was a governmental or intergovernmental adjudicative body. And so that left open the question of whether Section 1782 could be deployed in support of exit arbitrations, didn't it? It did, but the Supreme Court didn't provide a specific test for lower courts to follow in such cases. In our last podcast, you talked about the decision in Rebuild SPA, which was heard in the Southern District of New York, which quashed the claimant's subpoena seeking discovery for use before an exit tribunal. You'll recall the judge concluded that Section 1782 discovery assistance wasn't available to the claimants in an exit arbitration under the bilateral investment treaty between Panama and Italy. That's right. And now, somewhat unsurprisingly, of course, uh, that decision has been appealed to the Second Circuit. Briefings were completed in August, including an amicus brief filed by the United States, which argued that an investor state arbitral tribunal convened pursuant to the Exit Convention is not a foreign or international tribunal under Section 1782. Well, thank you. And it'll be interesting to see how the Second Circuit chooses to approach that question. And we'll be sure to report any developments in future episodes. Okay, so now let's talk about ISDS reform. Regular listeners will be aware that Yunsa Trial Working Group 3 is considering wide-ranging reforms to ISDS. And in October, the working group considered draft provisions on procedural reforms and so-called cross-cutting issues. That's right. And the Secretariat has now presented the draft provisions, which could be incorporated into existing and future international investment agreements or as a supplement to the UNCTRAL arbitration rules. And they address many issues that have proved contentious. Indeed. So the first section deals with conditions and limitations for the submission of ISDS claims by investors. So, for example, there's a requirement on investors to initiate proceedings in the courts of the host state in relation to the impugned measures before they can resort to ISDS. There's also a requirement for an investor to waive rights to initiate or continue any other dispute resolution proceeding concerning the impugned measures. And the section also proposes a limitation period, the length of which, however, is yet to be determined. This first section contains detailed provisions addressing the circumstances in which a state may deny an investor the benefits of an IIA, including where the investment was made in violation of the state's laws and regulations, or national or international principles of good faith, or was made by way of corruption, fraud, or deceitful contract. The section also has an express right for the contracting parties to regulate in the public interest and to adopt measures to ensure that investments are made in a manner sensitive to the protection of public health, the environment, and the promotion and protection of cultural diversity. And finally, this first section includes the state's rights to bring counterclaims. And if that wasn't enough, the second section addresses the conduct of proceedings, including in relation to bifurcation, provisional measures, early dismissal, security for costs, and third-party funding. And the third section has proposals governing the tribunal's assessment of damages and compensation. These require the tribunal to take account of a claimant's contributory fault and any failure to mitigate loss or damage. 
It also addresses the assessment of damages in cases of early stage investments without a history of business operations. And this is to address concerns that have been raised about the sometimes speculative nature of such claims. The discussions will be continued at the next meeting, which is due to take place between the 22nd and 26th of January in Vienna. And with that, we conclude this episode of Arbitral Insights. We hope it's been an interesting and practical review of recent and expected developments in investment arbitration. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll tune in to the next edition of our Arbitral Insights podcast series, and especially the next ISDS Horizon Scanning podcast. To find out more about Reed Smith's ISDS capabilities in London, Paris, the US and elsewhere, do please visit reedsmith.com. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.